Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We have around 6,000 members worldwide and around 50 branches. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 24th of April, 2023, and this is episode 297. On this week's Mentioned in Dispatches podcast, I talked to political scientist, author and scholar, Dr Michael Hunzecker, about his recent book, Dying to Learn. This book looks at innovation and learning on the Western Front during the Great War. Michael is an associate professor at George Mason University's Shah School of Policy and Government and also an associate director of the Shah School Centre for Security Policy Studies. He's also a senior non-resident fellow of the Centre for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. His book is published by Cornell University Press. Michael spoke to me from his office in Virginia in the USA. Michael, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Sure. Well, first off, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. And so just by way of quick background, I am currently an associate professor at George Mason University that's based in Fairfax, Virginia, near Washington, D.C., but at the Shar School of Policy and Government, where I primarily work on international relations, international security, although I tend to focus uh, very heavily on conventional deterrence and uh, recently uh, the Taiwan Strait and some of the issues around there. Uh, so in terms of this question of how I came to be really interested in the Great War, actually, it sort of corresponds with my career trajectory, which is to say I took a very circuitous route into academia. Out of college, I actually spent my first six years in the U.S. Marine Corps as a Marine officer. And as part of that six-year stint, I participated in the initial invasion of Iraq in 2003, and then I went back again in 2004 for sort of the early reconstruction effort. And I was really struck at that time, having no academic background whatsoever in the literature on organizational learning, I was just really struck by the challenges we faced as Marines, you know, despite the fact we'd spent years preparing for exactly the kind of war we had in March of 2003, which by the way, shocks me, that's been 20 years now. Uh, and then the war we actually ended up with once, you know, the conventional combat phase ended and the, the challenges that we wrestled with in terms of adapting to that new style of fighting. That left a profound impression on me and so when I left the Marine Corps in 2006 and went straight into graduate school, I was really fascinated with this question of how do organizations learn and change and why are some better at it than others? And just by chance, uh, my second year of graduate school, I read this book that had a profound impact on me. Stephen Biddle's Military Power came out in the early 2000s, highly recommended for anybody interested in military learning and military effectiveness. And one of the things he talks about as he talks about the evolution and innovation of combined arms warfare is the fact that it counterintuitively really its birthplace was on the Western front. And I, I thought this was really interesting. And so that sort of was my entryway into this rabbit hole that never seems to end of the Great War. Yes, tell me about it. Uh, yes, the Western Front Association is a cult from which you can never, you can check out anytime <laughs> you want, but you can never leave. But that's, <laughs> that's another story. Now, people might find it strange that your book is not primarily aimed at Great War history, or I suppose the Great War community uh, as a whole, but scholars uh, and who may would classify themselves as political scientists, especially those with an interest in innovation and learning organisations. Can you tell us about the reason for the um, targeting of the book at this group of people? Yeah, no, it's, I'm really glad you brought this up. I have definitely noticed that most of the reviews of my book have come from historians 
which I find is being a little bit perplexing. I have no problem with historians reviewing the book, but I'm probably not going to surprise many historians who've spent their lives and their professional careers immersed in this topic. My real target audience, though, is actually not even international relations scholars per se, although I clearly ground my analysis in that literature on military change and reform and innovation. But really, I'm trying to speak to practitioners, senior uniformed officers and defense officials and policymakers, you know, on both sides of the Atlantic, really. And my goal, the whole reason I spent about 10 years working on this project was not to make any innovations in the historiography. I think that ground has been very well tread. Really, I'm just trying to build on the insights of many historians who have gone before me. But I want to help our policy officials today think about what it's going to take to win the next war, if God forbid one were to break out. And at least from my humble perspective as an academic sitting on the sidelines near D.C., in my, in my view, there's there's really no shortage of work on great power conflict. That's the buzzword of art right now in D.C. or future warfare. And I, I got my sneaking suspicion. We've got a lot of smart people on the problem on both sides of the Atlantic. And if a war were to break out with China or a broader war with Russia, I, my guess is we'd come pretty close to getting it right doctrinally and technologically. But history also suggests that like close only counts in hand grenades and horseshoes and warfare is neither of these. And so we're going to have to close that gap between what we thought the future war would look like and what it will. And that gap, that distance to be closed is going to be measured in, in lives and, and treasure lost. So in my view, war is a classroom, but are we really as ready to learn as we'd like to tell ourselves uh, we are? And I know you, we talked before this podcast, you're interested in military effectiveness. I'll be the first to admit learning isn't the only determinant of military effectiveness. But sure as hell, it strikes me that it'd be better to be good at learning than it would be to be worse. And so this is, again, kind of why, what I wanted to speak to, who I wanted to speak to, and why I thought the First World War was the right conflict to study in history to really gather some of these lessons learned about learning lessons. So why, in that sense, focus on Britain, France, and Germany, maybe with um, leaving out the USA, whose story is very, very interesting, Russia and Austro-Hungary? I suppose we could put so, Turkey in there as well. I mean, first of all, so I guess... It's really a two-part question. Um, I mean, the first part of the question is, why even the First World War? And the second part is then, if you're going to look at the First World War, why pick these particular three armies, given that it was kind of the world's first world war? As to the first issue, you know, why look at the First World War? Why do I say it's such this fascinating and important example? Uh, I think it is, and for many of us who only knew what we had learned in high school about the First World War, it's this counterintuitive, we think of the First World War, and especially the Western Front, as being this case study in futility and stagnation. And of course, most of us until graduate school hadn't even read the historiography that shows that was furthest thing from the case. Uh, so that's interesting. But really, as a political scientist and IR scholar, my main reason for looking at the First World War is because I thought there were four very important parallels between the situation that Britain, France, and later the United States, Germany, faced in 1914 and the world we face today. The first of which is the First World War unfolded in a multipolar international system, lots of great powers, which makes things very confusing. And for policymakers today, especially in Washington, we are just kind of coming to grips with the fact we are no longer operating in a unipolar or bipolar world. So that's that's an important reason. Second is that the First World War followed this period of relative peace between the great powers. And again, relative peace between great powers is ostensibly a good thing. But if you're a military planner, it makes it really hard to like learn lessons about what the next war is going to look like. And so you have to you have to start picking these kind of marginal wars or wars on the periphery and then extrapolating from that. Turns out that can be risky. The third is that the First World War, as we all know, came on the heels of decades of rapid technological change. And of course, that complicates the war planner's task even further, because maybe you see some snippets of what these technologies look like when you, you know, use them on some marginal power like the U.S. did against Saddam's regime in 2003. But again, when you have two peer powers, both of which have lots of these things 
it, it, it could be difficult to predict. And the final reason is, if you look back, as I did, at the archives of the professional journals in these three armies, and you see the debates these officers were having, you realize these are very similar to the debates we see in our militaries right now. And in particular, for listeners who are interested, if you pay attention to what the Marine Corps is wrestling with, with this debate around so-called Force Design 2030, it, it really does, it harkens back to some of the challenges uh, the Brits, the French, and the Germans were wrestling with. So that was why I looked at the First World War. Why I focused on the French, German, and British armies, really, and I hate to bore your listeners, has to do with methodology. So as a political scientist, I am very interested. For me, it's like the only reason we exist uh, apart from historians is because in my mind, I need to be able to control for confounding factors, factors that might be explaining the outcome of interest, but that my theory doesn't capture. And so here, I really followed in the footsteps of Williamson Murray, who calls the First World War the closest thing to a natural experiment that we have in modern warfare, if not any war in history. You have those three armies in particular, they are fighting on literally the same ground. They're actually fighting one another. They have the same basic tactical and operational goals, which helps me you know, control for all sorts of challenging things when you're trying to ask, what does it mean to be effective? What does it mean to learn? For the most part, and there's some variation here, but they come at each other with roughly equivalent doctrines, roughly equivalent organizational structures, roughly equivalent weapons, and although the BEF is an outlier, roughly equivalent size, and certainly by the middle of the war, the BEF was a, a force to be reckoned with in its own right. But most important, they faced the same problem, deadlock, stalemate. And they had to find a way through that deadlock, which again allows me then to focus on those three armies, control for all these other possible causes, which if I looked at the Turks or I looked at the Austro-Hungarians or I looked at the Americans, you know, there are lots of other issues at play here that doesn't let me really isolate this question of how did they learn and who learned fastest. So you list three organizational variables which assist military organizations to generate ideas, determine whether these ideas are good, and then implant them in operational practice on the front line. Can you tell us about these ideas and how they varied in each of your case study? Sure, I'd be, I'd be happy to. I, to take one quick step back, and in my view, if you're really asking, you know, why do some armies learn faster than others, what you really have to boil it down to are kind of the three main tasks I think that in very general theoretic terms, any organization would have to perform if it wants to learn. First, I mean, first of all, it has to detect that something's not right and it has to change in the first place. That's actually a broader question. My book sort of sets to the side. For my purposes, I think Gary Sheffield was right when he says, listen, when they saw deadlock emerge, they didn't just stand their slack job. They recognized there was a problem and they immediately on both sides of the Western Front set to trying to figure this out. Uh, so I set that question aside. That's for other scholars. The next step, though, is you realize you're not doing things the right way. You got to experiment. You got to come up with new ideas, new alternative ways. After you've experimented, you have to engage in a process of analysis. So with many experiments, it looks like they worked. But did they really work for the reasons you thought they worked? Or was there some spurious cause? It happened the enemy was particularly weak in the sector that you attacked. This is something the French ran into when they tried to kind of build on these innovative new concepts they thought were working at Verdun. After you've analyzed and you think you've distilled what really worked, then you have to translate that into generalizable lessons learned, which means you got to turn it into a doctrine. You got to turn it into tactics, techniques, and procedures. And the third step is you, you got to teach those things. You got to teach it. You're literally building the airplane while it's flying. You got to teach it to an organization that is engaged in active combat. So while it's fighting, you also have to say, hey, by the way, the way you're fighting right now isn't right. I need you to change. And so if I kind of take those three prerequisites to learning, and I apply them not just to the First World War, but any military organization. I find that some organizations just by chance seem to be structured in ways that allow them to navigate those three steps faster than other organizations structured in other ways. And so to get to the crux of your question in the longest winded way possible, the three variables that I identify that really kind of determine who's better or worse at learning is 
command practices, assessment mechanisms, and training systems. And by that, when I talk about command practices, the degree to which you delegate command authority on the battlefield, my prediction is military organizations that exercise moderately decentralized command and control that empower things like lieutenants and captains and even senior staff and COs to make independent decisions on the battlefield. Second, armies that possess what I call prestigious, rigorously trained and networked and embedded assessment mechanisms, analytic cells who have a sole jurisdiction around questions of doctrinal learning and producing doctrinal manuals and tactical manuals. And then third, what I refer to as training systems, but the way in which you train your personnel. And here my prediction is armies that have highly, highly centralized training systems that exercise as much control as possible are going to be able to learn faster, specifically because they can translate these lessons as quickly as possible and overcome a lot of the institutional inertia and resistance we come to expect with any attempt to change a military. So which of the three case study countries that you look at comes top in your league on innovation and learning and translating success onto the battlefield? So bottom line up front, and again, here I am building on the existing historiography. I uh, was not diving into all of the archives myself, trying to determine winners and losers. But my understanding and interpretation of this very uh, prolific literature is that the German army learned faster than its adversaries with a couple of very important asterisks. The most important, which is it learned faster, but it still lost the war. And maybe we can talk about that in a few minutes. So I do want to disentangle learning from winning because you can learn and still lose. The German army seemed to prove that this was possible. The second piece is that, and this ties back in with the first of winning versus losing and learning, um, the German army was the fastest to learn. The British really didn't seem to be that far behind. So I actually kind of disaggregate this question of learning into how did you learn assault tactics? Like literally, how did your infantry units fight their way across the Western Front? How did you learn combined arms? How you integrate your infantry with your artillery? And how did you learn with the so-called elastic defense in depth and how you defended, which was, of course, very important on the Western Front? And I found that by and large, the Germans were ahead of the Brits and the French, not always by a lot, but by enough that it counted in all three of those categories. The way I understand the existing historiography, Sort of by the spring of 1917, the Germans had more or less mastered the elastic defense in depth. And then by the winter to early spring 1918, we can say the same about how they conducted assault tactics and combined arms. If you compare this to the Brits, who I think were very close behind assault tactics, you know, and I think it is difficult to pin an exact moment in time to say, yes, the British have mastered this because you can always find outliers if you look hard enough. But it seems reasonable to say that kind of by the summer of 1918, the British Army could be said to have kind of mastered assault tactics in the modern sense of the term. Really, by the spring of 1918, maybe winter 1917, 1918, that the same could be said of combined arms in the British Army. But the outliers, the elastic defense in depth, where history seems to suggest the Brits never really mastered it, although an argument could be made, they didn't need to, because by that point in the war, they were on the attack. Finally, we come to the French Army, which in some ways is really fascinating. It is the least studied of the three armies in terms of the historiography of literally the tactics, techniques, and procedures and how they evolved from the Western Front. But there it seems safe to say in terms of assault tactics, clearly they had the right ideas in place by the summer, fall of 1918, but there were some real challenges that they faced in terms of actually implementing them in terms of how units actually fought. There was a lot of uh, variation. Combined arms, probably about the summer of 1918, we could say they had mastered combined arms as we understand that. But like the British Army, yet for, in this case, very political reasons, the French army made a relatively explicit decision not to embrace the elastic defense in depth. So again, I'm not trying to add anything new to the historiography, but rather leverage the existing historiography to 
really transcend three separate literatures, one that looks at German learning, one that looks at British learning, one that looks at French learning, say, can we compare these and then really test my theory as to why some armies learn better than others. I suppose the, the question is, why did Germany win the, the innovation race and lose the battle or the war rather? Yeah, they, well, they, they lost the battle, then the war. Uh, really, in my mind, it comes back to the messy nature of what we mean by military effectiveness, which I guess to summarize is victory and defeat have many sources and many causes. Learning, I think, is one. It is an important one, but it is not the only one, and it certainly may not dominate other factors. In particular, and I, I'm quite emphatic about this towards the end of the book, because every time I've ever presented my research, the first question comes up, well, the Germans learned, but they lost, so what? Uh, there is just, there is no world in which learning, no matter how good, you could do cheetah flips with learning, but no matter how good you are at learning, there's no world in which it's going to be able to offset or compensate for inept political and strategic decision-making. I think one could make the case, we saw this with the American military at certain points in its own history, but to be sure, the German high command and German political leadership, the points in the war when politicians were still calling the shots, just made bad mistake, and bad judgment, and bad call after bad call. Whether we're talking about the decision to take a shortcut through Belgium in order to gain operational speed, which virtually guaranteed then the British entry into the war, which became a real problem for the Germans, uh, to the fact that by 1917, in a moment in history where I think if you really look at American sentiment, Americans could have either gone either way in terms of backing either side or actually wanted to stay out of it altogether. Uh, but when you do things like reaching out to Mexico to talk about making, making a formal military alliance, or you engage in unrestricted submarine warfare, you in essence are pushing the Americans off the sidelines, which is going to have devastating effects. There's even a puzzle surrounding the German non-decision not to try to sue for peace or to bargain for some sort of settlement by early 1918, when they were in arguably the most powerful position they were ever going to be in in that conflict, having knocked Russia out of the war, yet recognizing that the United States was about to enter the war and that manpower ultimately was going to work against them. It would have been a rational point in the conflict to have sued for peace, but instead they decide to double down using their new operational concepts. Um, I, I, I think what's really interesting is how, how, when you look at learning, how uniform is it across organizations? Because, you know, decentralized you know, there seems to be a contradiction between a centralized training system and a decentralized decision making. How did the Germans square that circle? So one of the things I think that helped the German. So as a larger theoretical question, this th there is this tension right between you're empowering frontline subordinates, but you're controlling how they train. But I think really the answer is that they really aren't in tension quite to that same degree, because the expectation is that to empower someone, they got to know what they're doing in the first place. And I say this as a Marine officer, so coming up through the ranks in the early 2000s, I don't think I'm putting too fine a point on it when I say the Marines were obsessed with the German military of the 20th century, just obsessed. Except our understanding of how the Germans practice command and control <laughs> is, uh, it, it was watered down. I think it was, it was inaccurate. I think we lost a lot of the nuance. So as a Marine coming up, almost the mantra in which we embraced, uh, I think some officers at the time nicknamed it chaos warfare, which was basically, here's our doctrine. Don't bother reading it. Get out there, innovate, make decisions, empower, you know, take risks. Uh, that's not how the Germans practice it. And I think most effective organizations that empower the supporters, that's not how they practice it. Rather, there's this expectation that we are going to train you to a standard. And once you show yourself competent to that standard, then we will trust you to make your own decisions. Now, to be sure, that's a bit of a balancing act because it could very easily transcend into micromanagement. But it does seem the Germans, and again, this wasn't, I don't think, visionary on their part. Maybe it was just by luck. But they did have, as part of their command culture, this idea that we would begin to empower you, but only after you showed that you had mastered existing doctrine. And so I think that's what allowed them to kind of square this circle of saying, we will empower you, 
And to be clear, my understanding is the level of decentralization, when we now say decentralized, that's not how the German army practiced command and control early on in the conflict. That wasn't until later that kind of subalterns, that lieutenants and captains were being empowered in this way. Uh, but the expectation was as a German officer, you were really going to understand and know your stuff. And at that point, then you could be trusted with these decisions. And so my argument is even with something like combined arms warfare, where you do have to relinquish a modicum of control to frontline leaders. And so it does cause that balancing act that still training them and centralizing that training and ensuring consistency in how they are taught is going to get them to that point that they can make effective decisions. Because the worst thing on the world is just to empower people who have no idea what they're doing. Then in essence, you're just continually experimenting and you're going to lose a lot of folks. And the other, the other factor I was wondering about, how did the, I suppose, the wider cultures within France, Spain and, and the United Kingdom actually shape the, the ability of organizations to learn in terms of, of social norms, expectations, education level and things like that? Yeah. So this is an utterly fascinating question. And it's one that I had to, in my book, be really forthright about is, so I can control for many factors. One of the reasons I look at the British, the French, the Germans, I can, they're similar in many regards that allows us to be a natural experiment. One area I can't control for is national culture, because each of these countries came to the conflict with remarkably different cultures. And of course, these military organizations are nested in this larger culture. So it's going to have an impact. And it's an impact, I have to say, you know, I can try to account for it when I see it creeping in in ways that will skew the analysis. But at the end of the day, these are just three cultures. That's for somebody else to study. What I try to do at the end of the book is then I offer, I mean, if historians hate what they've heard thus far, they're really going to hate what I offer here. But the, my very last chapter, I offer what political scientists call uh, shadow cases. In essence, really, really, really short, you know, five, 10 page case studies. And here I look at the U.S. Army across two conflicts. And I do it specifically because this at least gives me some chance to say, all right, I've identified these three organizational structural variables. I can't really control for British culture, French culture, German culture. But if I look at least in a cursory way at the U.S. Army in Vietnam, the U.S. Army in the early stages of the Iraq War, here at least I have one organization coming from one country, which kind of lets me get at culture in a more important way. And so by fixing culture sort of statically, I try to show them these two uh, shadow cases that the organizational variables still operate in the way that I saw them operate on the Western Front. Therefore, that has some meaning. All of that said, though, I definitely think that there's a lot of room to explore this influence that culture can have because culture obviously is going to seep down in terms of how you trust your subordinates. And this is why I actually think the Marine Corps' understanding of the German army is a bit skewed because if you really want the most decentralized army on the Western Front, it was indisputably the French army. And that is that is an army that seemed to really empower frontline subordinates to do sorts of things that the Germans, I think, that would have made them blanch. Uh, and so I think for all these reasons, culture is, is worthy of, of deeper exploration. And that leads me on to my penultimate question. So what are the implications of your study? So I'm glad you asked, because again, the whole purpose of the exercise was really to be able to offer some policy recommendations to policymakers. Uh, but again, if historians don't want my dry political science, policymakers will be even less attuned to it. So really, I should have turned my book into just an introduction and a conclusion. Uh, and so for anybody listening who's thinking about the book, you know, you really want to cut through things and take my word for the case studies, unless you're a historian, and then just read the first and last chapter. But in the last chapter, I really try to drive home four main points. Uh, the first really here speaking to American defense officials and policymakers is just, please, please, please do not overlook the challenge of wartime learning. For Americans in particular, it is just so easy for us to fixate on sexy technology. We're just a technologically driven society, a bureaucratic structure. Let's be honest, even for people like me who study, it's boring, makes you want to peel your eyes out of your face. It's mundane and unexciting and sexy. The problem is, I really do think our ability to learn quickly will turn on things like training and doctrine command in the U.S. Army, 
or Marine Corps Combat Development Command, these acronym organizations that most officers, when they get signed there, they're like, ah, oh, you know, this is a terrible place. This is not as exciting as working on the latest hypersonic missile. I think we'll get the hypersonic missiles right. I think we'll get the AI right. I think we'll get the quantum computing right. But how we bring those together in terms of tactics, techniques, and procedures, I'm a little bit more worried about that. The second implication is that I think all Western military organizations need to be very attuned to their analytic mechanisms, in particular, the human capital and the degree to which they have trained them to engage in rigorous analysis. Uh, if you read about a lot of the U.S. Army's transformations after the Vietnam War, leading up to the Gulf War in 1990-1991, kind of the star of that case is training and doctrine command. And the fact that it was a really exciting, innovative place to work, officers were seeking to get there, and they really underwent a lot of rigorous analytic training. That's not the case anymore in the U.S. Army. TRADOC is a place that people don't want to go. I would hasten to say in almost any of the U.S. military branches, an officer who is assigned to an analytic career staff pathway more or less thinks of their career as being killed. Like they do it because they're interested in it, but they don't ever think they're going to rise to the level of command. But if my studies of the Western Front suggest anything, that is absolutely positively the wrong way to look at things. And the U.S. military, which is really good at collecting lessons, not, I think, so great at learning from them, let alone distilling them into a holistic doctrine. Uh, if we really want to get better at that, we are going to have to protect officers whose careers take them on this analytic pathway, even if it takes them away from things like command, which the American military puts a lot of stock in. And the last thing I would say is, although it doesn't worry me as much as the need to protect analytic pathways and careers for officers who go that route, I'm a bit worried that with the way technology looks like it's headed, there will be a temptation if a future great power war were to break out to micromanage. We actually saw the same thing transpire in the British and the French armies. Arguably, they were at least as decentralized, if in the French case, more decentralized than the German army at the start of that conflict. But we saw both armies, especially when they saw the bloodletting happening on the Western Front, we saw them kind of reactively, instinctively kind of centralized command and control into the hands of a few senior officers. When you empower senior leaders and political leaders with things like real-time reporting, the ability to reach out and talk to people, quantum, you know, AI, this ability to control things or feel like you can control things from afar, uh, I worry that's going to rob things, rob decision-making ability out of the hands of frontline commanders. That could not only lead to bad tactical decisions, but it could lead to a dearth of experimentation, which of course, like I said, is kind of the first important step in the learning process. And my final question is, where can people learn more about your book and yourself oh. as well? Well, I mean, certainly a quick Google search, you can, whatever, a few modest things I have written, amazon.com, if you really want to get yourself got. They actually turned it into an audiobook, And I just had these nightmare scenarios of like cars veering off the road, crashing into trees, and the investigators would find they were listening to my audiobook. Some poor person had to read that for 15 hours. Uh, I certainly would love, though, any interested listeners to, to, to take a gander of the book. For people who want to read other kind of literature in this broader genre of military change, in particular, if you're kind of historian, uh, but you're interested, if it piqued your interest about what IR scholars have to say about this question, I strongly encourage people to check out Stephen Rosen's Winning the Next War. I would say right alongside of uh, Biddle's Military Power, Stephen Rosen's Winning the Next War, those are kind of the two, they're like the mother and father of this project that I ultimately produced. Uh, Williamson Murray, who of course is a prolific writer, but military adaptation and war was also, I think, very influential in how I thought about the problem set. Frank Hoffman has a great new book called Mars Adapting. And if you're looking for an up-and-coming scholar, uh, Kendrick Kuo, he's at the U.S. Naval War College, has an excellent new piece in international security. It's an IR journal, but it's called Dangerous Changes, which actually looks at the inadvertent downsides of embracing innovation and change, especially if you kind of get out over your skis and embrace the technology and, and go a little bit too all in. 
He also has an excellent dissertation on the topic, which I hope he soon turns into a book as well. Uh, for those who like the First World War stuff but are kind of interested, I, I had referenced this historiography about learning in the German army, the British army, the French army. I'm sure listeners are familiar with Timothy Lutfer's groundbreaking book on the dynamics of doctrine. Patty Griffith, of course, and his work on battle tactics. Amy Fox and her much newer work on learning in the British Army. And finally, a book I found really fascinating and very well written uh, is uh, Michelle Goya's Flesh and Steel. And on that bombshell, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That's great. I'll record it. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.